0: a copy of God's Word and turn it open to James chapter 1. We're not going to continue. We we started James, of course. We're not going to continue to the next uh, section, but hopefully expand a little bit on what we did uh, last week. Uh, So a little bit of a different sermon today. Uh, We'll be looking at numerous passages on the topic of prayer Uh, James 1 will just sort of serve as the the springboard in which we jump off of into those other passages on prayer. Uh, We might call today an expansion on the final exhortation that we left off with last week, uh, which was the exhortation to depend on God by asking Him, uh, by praying. I actually didn't expect to preach this morning, uh, as Gary might have alluded to earlier, uh, until I got a text message yesterday morning. Um, so, um, anyway, I expected Brian to preach today. I've been in uh, Louisville, Kentucky at a pastor's conference called Together for the Gospel. Uh, and Brian was going to preach. Uh, he had a sermon ready to go and, and everything. Uh, but as you heard, his uncle passed away. And so, he's actually doing the service uh, uh, today for that the family. Uh, so, we should, we're going to pray for him in just a second. Uh, the conference itself was was very edifying, uh, and one that I hope to share with you more in, in, in coming weeks uh, i 'm very thankful uh, for you as a church and letting me go away for a week. Uh, I ran into seventeen people who used to be uh, members of Redeemer Church. Uh, one was Jess Odell, um, but seventeen and many of these folks uh, are, are are leaders in churches in other cities and in other states. So uh, as I was talking with them and eating lunch with them and whatnot, they, they continued to express uh, great, a great fondness for Redeemer Church uh, still. And many of them expressed uh, a love, to, to, uh, a, lo- a longing to come back and visit uh, with you. So you all should be really encouraged by that. Uh, This is the Lord's work. Um, These are folks who were uh, once in seminary, were here for three or four years, and and moved on to to other places. Um, They they walked through hard times with us, and God really used that time and your steadfastness through that time uh, to shape and mature leaders who are now serving in other churches elsewhere and implementing much of what they learned here. I mean, guys that served in children's ministry, who are taking the children's ministry program and implementing it in their churches, Uh, guys who went through pastoral discipleship, guys who um, uh, learned from from our members' meetings and the importance of membership in the church, just uh, the things that they're longing uh, to do in their own churches uh, based on things they learned here. So I I just want you to be encouraged by that, that the Lord is using you. might call yourself a hub, uh, uh, the Lord brings people to us for a little while and is uh, send, sending them off uh, to other places. so I want to give thanks for that to God right now and, and also pray for Brian. Uh, Father, I thank you for um, the encounters that I had this this week. Uh, I thank you for for the the testimonies of these men. Uh, many of whom shared uh, how much they learned here uh, while they were in attendance with us. And uh, I thank you for the work that you're doing in each one of their lives. Uh, Thank you for uh, all of the many blessings that you poured out upon us in our season with them. And I pray that the people who are with us now, we would take hold of this opportunity to minister to them as well, to, to pour our lives into them that, that no matter what you do with them, whether they stay here or go elsewhere to serve, um, that you would be honored and glorified and your churches strengthened across the states and, and in other parts of the world. Uh, use us, continue uh, to Give us the grace we need and the gifts we need to, to uh, love one another and equip one another in the gospel. Thank you for uh, Brian and his willingness to serve and his devotion to your, your word this week. Um, we look forward to, to, to hearing from him sometime in the near future, all that you prepared his heart for this week. And I pray, though, now that you would equip him to speak. Uh, the word of truth to his family. Uh, We pray if there are family members there who are are not saved, that you would use Brian's words, uh, the gospel, uh, the message of truth, Ephesians calls it, to convert them. Um, That people who who come to his uncle's funeral, uh, who've never bowed their knee, uh, could walk away today perhaps saying, Hallowed be your name, Uh, your kingdom come. Uh, I ask that you would give Brian and Dawn wisdom uh, and clarity and compassion in the midst of their uh, gatherings, and uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do today is review what we covered last week on asking the Lord for wisdom in verses 5 to 8, and then we're going to jump off that passage into the much broader topic of prayer. And, and, and I want to, what I want to do in particular is provide gospel remedies to why you may struggle to pray. Why you may struggle to, to ask the Lord, as, as James is, is telling us to ask here. Um, you know, if you're sick, you not only need a right diagnosis of your problem, but the doctor uh, also needs to give you the right remedy The gospel of Jesus not only gets to the root of our soul problems when it comes to prayer, but it also gives us, and it is, the right remedy. I'm not assuming that every one of you shares these same struggles uh, to pray. A few of you have a very regular and rich prayer life. Uh, But I do want to address some very common reasons uh, that professing Christians have struggled to pray. Uh, So, review... Verses 5 to 8, and then some gospel remedies for struggling prayer life. So first off, let's review James 1, verses 5 to 8. God says through James, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it'll be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts... Is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's review just for a minute. We saw that uh, we must connect our lacking in Christ-likeness ...to our asking for Christ-likeness. If you look at verse 4, he ends it by saying that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's James's way of basically talking about Christ-likeness. We lack wisdom for, the, for living this kind of life... ...that considers it all joy when you encounter various trials... ...that remains steadfast through trials... ...so that it produces Christ-likeness in us. We, we lack this kind of wisdom. In fact, our various trials often expose... ...that we lack this wisdom necessary... ...for the trials to produce Christ-likeness. They expose our weaknesses. They expose our sins. Um, James knows this. God knows this. But that doesn't mean we're hopeless. Okay. We saw also... That we have a generous God. Verse 5 says that He is generous. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So, the, the wisdom that God commands, He also delights to give. He gives what He commands. It's the way our God is. The wisdom he commands, he also delights to give. Of course, the passage also says we must ask in faith with no doubting. We shouldn't ask with doubting. Doubting is faith's opposite, we saw. And here, it basically means to ask God with divided loyalty. The person who doubts asks from a heart that wants God's wisdom... But not if it has a cross attached to it. The right way to ask is to ask in faith, with a single minded commitment to God's revealed will in Scripture. We, we ask trusting in God's character, we ask trusting in God's Son, with a willingness to obey Him with all that He gives us. If that's the way we ask, God is pleased to give us the wisdom of Christ. He gives it generously. But we have to ask. It doesn't come to us automatically. It comes through asking, through praying. And this is where I want to jump off James 1 into the much broader topic of prayer, and in particular, why you may struggle to pray. I mean, it's great if you walked away last Sunday knowing what James verses, James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8 means, but it's not going to do you any good if you're not asking. Okay? So let's talk about that some more. Let's talk about ways you may struggle in your prayer life and then apply various gospel remedies to that struggle. So number one, perhaps you struggle to pray because you lack the Holy Spirit. Because you lack the Holy Spirit. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, I mean, by saying that, I'm not saying that that you go out and you seek a so-called second blessing to stimulate your prayer life, you know, as some charismatic circles might might suggest. (coughs) I'm making a much more basic point. I'm simply pointing us to what all Christians hold in common through the new birth. Namely, the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. Romans 8, verse 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to God. So all who truly belong to God, through Jesus, have the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8, verse 15, goes on to teach us that when the Spirit indwells believers, they cry out to God from their newly adopted status, Abba, Father. We see it also in Galatians 4, 6. We'll look at that a little bit later. When the Spirit fills your soul as God's child, you want to talk to your Father who took you out of the slums of sin and brought you into His inheritance, into His kingdom. You want to cry to Him in the midst of your need. Abba! Right? It's not a cute, cuddly, cry, it is the cry of Gethsemane. It is a cry of you getting your face ripped off by a pit bull. Abba! That's the idea. When the Spirit comes and lives within here, that's the cry that comes out every day of our lives. But if there exists no desire to communicate with this Father of love, if this is, is not the cry that you have, then you must begin with a more fundamental question. Am I even a Christian at all? Do I truly have the Holy Spirit? That's not a question that you can answer on your own. We need to invite brothers and sisters in to help us with such discernment. That's what the local church is for, to, to help us confirm and assure us that we're in Christ, that we're actually in the faith, or not. But here's the gospel remedy if that's you, if you, if you don't have the Holy Spirit. The, you know, the answer is not, well, guess that's me, and walk out the door. No, no, no. The gospel says this to you, run to the Lord Jesus. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Rely on Him with your life. The doorway of reconciliation with God stands open through Christ. Even if you discern that your so-called Christian life has been a sham up to this point, Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover that too. He became a shameful spectacle to clothe you with honor and fill you with honesty. Repent and trust in His finished work. And you will become God's child, enjoying the spirit of adoption and learning to pray with the rest of His children. Abba. Number two, perhaps you struggle to pray because you never learned how. You just never learned how. You never knew that, perhaps, that God commands prayer of all believers like in Colossians 4-2 continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Romans 12-12 be devoted to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5-17 pray without ceasing. Or perhaps you knew to pray you, mean you, you read James, or you see he says ask God for wisdom but you just never learn how. I mean Nobody discipled you in in that. Well, here's the remedy. God inspired a written word to teach us to pray. He gave us his revealed will, and this book teaches us how to pray. I can think of uh, 2 Samuel, for example, if you want to... Turn there, 2 Samuel, after David receives the revealed will of God through his promise, the Davidic promise of the kingdom and the, uh, David's kingdom lasting forever and somebody being on his throne forever. And, and David then follows that revelation with a prayer to God. And he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. (laughs) See how that works? God reveals his will and it fills us with a vocabulary that that speaks, that offers prayers back to God, and, and, and we pray in accordance with, with that will. And that's the pattern throughout Scripture. I mean, we get examples of prayers from the saints of old in the Bible, Abraham and Moses and David. Oh man, especially in the Psalms, David knows God's will. He's just not seeing things lining up, and he's pouring out his heart, asking for God to act we can also learn to pray from the instructions of the apostles, uh, the examples that they set before us, and, and what to pray, and, and how to pray. And sometimes Paul will even write, write out a, a prayer or two. Uh, Ephesians 3, for example, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and, and so on. So they're writing out their prayers for us. That's the written word. We also learn to pray from the incarnate word. Jesus himself teaches us how to pray. Uh, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is, is, a, is, a, is a famous example, you, you, you may know well, and, and a good framework to use in your own quiet times. Several times over, Jesus also teaches us what to pray for, uh, and, and sometimes gives us parables on, on how we should ask. Uh, we ask in his name, we ask with persistence and with watchfulness and with readiness and with his word abiding in our hearts. So if this is your struggle, you just you never learned how, let the written word and the incarnate word be your teacher's. Let them help you. God God doesn't leave us ignorant. He gives us a vocabulary in the written word and then guides us through the incarnate word. And that incarnate word is also alive in the people that he's placed around you in the local church. Christ is living in your brothers and sisters. And you can go to these brothers and sisters who've walked with him for a while and ask them, how is Jesus leading you to pray? And they can help you. Number three, perhaps you struggle to pray because you think that you need nothing. Because you think that you need nothing. God's people have often fallen prey to this self deception. We see it in Adam, we see it in Israel, we see it in some of the kings in Israel. And we also see it in the church. Uh, Think of the church in Laodicea, for example. People pretending they need nothing from God. It's why David would say in the Psalms, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some people lean on their own wisdom and their own strength and their own resources. And that was true for all of us before God's grace opened our eyes to see our desperate need for Him. But it's something still true even for the Christian. Okay, we... We just have sophisticated ways of disguising it. Instead of realizing that we're being self-reliant, we just say that we're too busy to pray. We just need a a schedule change instead of a heart change. Instead of admitting that we, we don't know all the answers, we talk and criticize and we complain too much in times when we should have been praying. Instead of asking God first, we ask God only after we exhaust all other resources and options. Perhaps you remember the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus says to this church, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is what it means to be a lukewarm church, by the way. This is a definition of lukewarmness. It's the self-sufficient cancer that says, "I need nothing." And in a culture like the West, uh, you know, where everything we need is at our fingertips or within driving distance, the temptation to think we're doing just fine without God rages all the more. Trust in self kills dependence on God. No praying life persists when self-confidence runs high. So, How would you characterize our church? As as a member here, how how, how would you characterize our church? I'm I'm not talking about how you might characterize each individual in this room, but how would you characterize our church collectively? As, As a whole, as a body? I mean, would you say that we're a people marked by desperate dependence on God in prayer? What is it that characterizes our church? Is it just teaching? Is it just sound doctrine? Or is it a desperate... Is it also a desperate... Dependence on God and prayer. David Platt has observed that it's dangerously possible to carry on with the programs of our church and do them all smoothly and not realize that the Holy Spirit was absent from the process. We have made a deadly mistake. I am convinced the greatest hindrance... To the advancement of the gospel to the nations may be the attempt of the church of God to do the work of God apart from the spirit of God. Are we as the church dependent on ourselves or are we desperate for his spirit, he asks. We must consider the sober warning from Jesus in Revelation 3 to Laodicea. Sometimes, you know, the gospel remedy doesn't just come with promise, it comes with warning. We need to realize, we need to expand our view of the the gospel. It comes with warning and promise. And to pretend we need nothing from God, Revelation 3 says, makes the king of kings vomit. That's the warning of self-sufficiency. The warning to self-sufficiency. Jesus says, I will spew you out of my mouth. You will not be part of him anymore. But he also says that we don't have to remain in that state. And this is the beautiful thing about all, all seven churches in Revelation is, is the Lord is holding out uh, to them the opportunity of repentance. He's, he's patient. He's, he's telling them these things so that they turn. There's still opportunity to repent from self-reliance. We can still humble ourselves before him and admit, as Revelation 3.18 says, how wretched and desperate and poor and naked and needy we really are apart from the grace of our generous God being poured out. And then with that humility, we need eyes open wide to Jesus Christ. Because he also goes on to give us promise in Revelation 3. Promise with the warning, a promise. I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see... Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Why is Jesus standing on the outside of the church to begin with? That's the point. They don't need him in their daily walk. At least they think they don't need him. But he promises, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. He will reward the repentant person with his presence, with his riches. So the gospel remedy here to self-reliance comes with warning that exposes our need. It comes with promise, the promise of Jesus' reward in his presence. Number four, perhaps you struggle to pray because you doubt God's ability. You doubt God's ability. You know, there are times we don't pray simply because we doubt God's ability to help or, or change anything. I mean, we start believing the lies that people are too sinful. The needs of this city are too great. The circumstances are too dire for God to work. The darkness is too thick for His light to penetrate. So we don't ask. I mean, you hear these things coming out in people's conversations. He's just too far gone. Just too far gone. But the Bible is clear. When we pray, we approach no one less than God... ...through his exalted Christ... ...who upholds the universe by the word of his power. If he chose to do so... ...and asked the pew you're sitting in... ...to stop holding together... ...you'd fall flat on your tush. I mean, this is how much he is involved... Sustaining everything in this world by the word of His power. And according to Matthew 28:18, Jesus possesses the supreme right and infinite power to achieve all his desired goals for heaven and earth. This is why he says he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That means he possesses the supreme right and the infinite power to achieve all his desired goals. For heaven and earth and if that's the case none of our requests are too great for him none of them are too great for them to handle he, he never feels taxed by our requests as if he lacks the resources to, to follow through like really frustrated you're crying out to him he's like Ugh, sorry I mean I'm out of that I'm out of money over here I'm out of power over here to convert somebody it doesn't feel like that. You know, one of the most frequent questions I get when my children finish eating is, Daddy, what can we have now? Right? Another plate goes by. Daddy, what can we have now? Like, I don't have any more supper. But Do you have any dessert? You know, this is the... This is... And, and all the while, I can't help but think of the next grocery bill. Right? Teasing out, okay, what's this going to mean when they're 15? What am I doing? I'm checking to see if there's going to be enough resources. Jesus doesn't do that. He never worries over his resources. Your requests never overload him. He he is infinite in wisdom and power and riches. He is the source of life itself. And by his word, the invisible and visible universe is upheld. I used to love, uh, Mike Branch and I used to meet together for prayer. And I used to love hearing Mike pray because he knew this about him. He's confident about Christ and His power to do things. We should ask for extraordinary things and take every confidence in Jesus' ability to, to answer because He is an extraordinary King. That's the gospel remedy to doubting God's ability. Christ is an extraordinary King with no limits to His power or authority or wealth. We pray big because our God is great. We ask for more because our God is generous. But some of us have still been disappointed, haven't we? That's number five. You may struggle to play because you've been disappointed. Perhaps you've asked God for something. Maybe something big. But it didn't happen. And out of some desire to protect yourself from further disappointment, you, you just stop asking. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to ask anymore, so I'll just be disappointed. You know, why persist? I want you listen to this parable from Jesus first. Jesus is telling his disciples a parable in, uh, in Luke's Gospel chapter 18. And uh, he tells them this parable to the, effect, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Okay. He says, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So she kept coming to him. Note that. She kept coming to him. And then Jesus says this. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. The unrighteous judge. And will not God, meaning the God who is righteous, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night So the elect there, you see, they cry to him day and night. God will give justice to them. Will he delay long over them, he says? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Speedily. But sometimes disappointment means that that we give up on our persistence. We're not like this persistent widow We do lose heart. But consider a few gospel remedies to this particular struggle with disappointment. To begin, we we should remember that uh, I mean, as this text is pointing out, that that we have a God who cares for us. He's not like the unrighteous we saw in James one, he's not like the unrighteous judge who just says, Oh, you just stop bothering me and gives her justice. He, he, he's actually a God, we learned last week, that gives to us without reproach. He doesn't berate us when we, when we ask. He, he gives to us without reproach. He's generous. He loves giving to us. But also we should remember that God answers prayer in His timing and not our own. Whether that's immediately or long after we're gone from this world. You ever think about that, that that God may answer your prayers after you're dead? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with Him trusting His generosity and His wisdom? You know, our smartphone culture, which trains us in immediate gratification and instant significance, it subtly leads us to believe that if Jesus doesn't answer our request immediately, He's not trustworthy. He's not generous. He doesn't hear. But the fact that Jesus hasn't answered a request you've made doesn't mean He's failed you or ignored you. It could simply mean that in His infinite wisdom, He just hasn't answered it yet. It's not time. Or, God also answers prayer in ways we sometimes don't expect, but which also serve our conformity to Christ. In other words, we we might just be looking for the wrong things in our answer requests. Uh, We could think of Paul, for example. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. You know, he cries out three times for the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh. It's just bothering him. He even calls it a messenger of Satan. But the Lord saw it fitting to answer Paul's request in a different fashion. Instead of removing the thorn, he taught Paul to be content with his weakness, saying, My grace is sufficient for you. It wasn't that God did not answer Paul's prayer. It was that God's answer filled Paul's thorn in the flesh with new meaning. When I am weak, Christ is strong, is what he walks away with. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Sometimes he answers in ways we don't expect for our conformity to Christ or or and, and we certainly saw this in James um, in verses uh, 6 to 8 here is that God may also refuse to answer prayer until we wake up to our disobedience. Until our, to our, do we wake up to our divided heart, our divided loyalty. James one seven said that the double minded man ought not to suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. James four three says, "You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions." You now God's refusal doesn't mean He ignores us altogether. But that as a good father, he gives us what is best for us, even when that means withholding certain blessings to sever us from our idolatry. And to drive us deeper into into longings for Christ. So overall, with these things I've been making here under point five, the relationship with God in prayer isn't for immediate gratification. But to help us learn to say with our Lord, Not my will be done, but yours. And in that we will find satisfaction and joy and thanksgiving. So, so check your disappointment with some of these gospel truths. God is wise, He is generous to give us all we need or to withhold what we want, all for our conformity to Christ. Number six. Perhaps you struggle to pray because you think you must be perfect. Perhaps you struggle to pray because you think you must be perfect. See, the gospel comes at us different ways. It comes to the person who's just living life the way he wants, and it says, hey, God's not going to hear you keep living like this. But then it comes to the person who's just always looking inward and you know, self-diagnosing every little part of their soul. And, and it says, you know, uh, and, and th- this, this point is for, is for that person. Because you think you must be perfect. You know, perhaps the last point about obedience makes some of you coil up inside. You heard James talking about asking in faith last week. And you wonder whether your prayers are filled with such trust and single-mindedness through and through. The link between prayer and obedience tips you to see God not as a generous father, but as an exacting tyrant who refuses your prayer requests unless you're perfect. Unless they come out just right. Unless your prayer closet's just clean. It's true. The Bible makes obedience a big deal in our praying but maybe it would help you see that, that the whole point of James' instructions to asks assumes that we're lacking something. Okay? And even Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we forgive those who sin against us. We don't have to be perfect in order to pray. Jesus tells us to confess our sins as part of our asking. And James assumes that we're not perfect. And that's why we need to ask to begin with. More than that. We should remember in our asking that entering God's presence isn't because of our own perfection. But because of Christ's perfection for us. Okay, we come to God on no merit of our own. Want you to hear that again? No merit of our own but solely on the merit of Jesus Christ and His righteousness imputed to us. So much for confessionals in the Catholic Church. Jesus obeyed for us. And did you know that that obedience even included His prayer life? Okay, remember he's on his way to the cross and he stops and prays with Peter, James, and John and, and three times while he's sweating drops of blood they're across the way staring at the back of their eyelids catching some Z's and that's even after Jesus wakes them up twice twice <laughs> But it didn't keep him from going to the cross. He didn't look at their prayerless attitudes in the midst of his greatest moment and be like, forget these guys. I mean, look at this. Even Jesus' faithful prayer life gets imputed to you when you trust in him. His bank account is full, your bank account is empty. When you trust in him, his everything that's his becomes yours by faith. He obeyed for you, even in, the, even in terms of his prayer life. So Jesus obeyed for us. Jesus died for us. And the Father approved of his life and his death by exalting him to his right hand, where Jesus still prays for us, even in all our weakness and all, all of our imperfections and sin. If you're God's child, don't feel like you must do something more to bend God's ear to you. He's already lent his ear to you in Christ. We need not try to concoct some kind of pious tone or perfect sentences to ask Him. For anything, we can simply ask. Don't feel like you must jump hurdles to get back to God. All the obstacles were torn down when Jesus died on the cross and then caused you to be born again by His Spirit. Ephesians 3.12 says, We even have boldness and access access with Confidence through our faith in Jesus. So the gospel remedy to perfectionism in prayer is this. Maybe we could say it as the old hymn does, The Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We can pray with confidence. And yet imperfectly. Because Christ lived, died, and still prays perfectly for us. So come then freely before the Lord, resting holy on the perfection of Jesus. And ask. Ask away. Number seven. Perhaps you struggle to pray because you believe that it's pointless. Pointless. You believe it's pointless. After all, isn't God sovereign? Why pray if God preordained whatsoever comes to pass? Why pray if there is no such thing as a maverick molecule in this universe? Again, there's a few gospel remedies for this. To begin, the Bible never teaches that God's absolute sovereignty undermines human responsibility. Rather, it presents them as being compatible. Uh, Clearest of all, we see this at the cross. Uh, Tim Foster pointed this out for us a while back in his message. But Acts 2.23, we see both... The absolute sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Acts 2.23 says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So we have the absolute sovereignty. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's human responsibility. And he goes on to tell them, repent. They have a responsibility. And their sin. They are compatible God's sovereignty also becomes the only ground and hope of our prayers. That God can and will act on our behalf. Okay, you can see this with the Lord's Prayer. For example, your kingdom come, your will be done. And you can see it in the prayers of the Apostles. Uh, If you you went to Acts 2 a minute ago, you can see Acts Acts 4. You can see this in Acts 4. Um, Turn one more page to Acts 4 where you have the Apostles here. And uh, Acts chapter 4, verse uh, 23, this is after they were released. They start their prayer in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They're grounding their prayer in the sovereignty of God. It goes on to tell what they did to Jesus based on Psalm 2, verse 27. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now based on and built on that sovereignty of God, this is the way they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was which they were gathered together was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So in the apostles' minds, the sovereignty of God does not make them go, What's the point? Sovereignty of God makes them go, Lord, do something. You can, you're sovereign. Overall. So God's sovereignty doesn't undermine their praying, it empowers it. The Bible also teaches that God preordains the ends as well as the means. And prayer is the means through which God accomplishes his redemptive purposes. God gives prayers to his people in order to accomplish his purposes. And, and, and the beautiful thing here is that we get to participate in it. We are the people, the Christians. We, we we get to be the privileged recipients of interacting with God as He carries out His purposes. Uh, think of all the different things the apostles tell us to pray for: prayers to bear fruit in every good work, prayers to live peaceable under the uh, uh, peaceable lives under governing authorities. Prayers for Jesus to be glorified in the church. Prayers that God would save people. Prayers for healing. Prayers for the gospel to penetrate the darkness. And on and on it goes. And what we're seeing here is we see that prayer is a means God uses to advance his purposes in the gospel. I mean, this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit. God is putting prayers in his book that we may pray them that his purposes might be accomplished. But most importantly we should also remember that prayer itself is a goal of the gospel. The goal, one of the goals of God acting in His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God ordains prayer as a means to fulfilling His purposes. But more importantly, it's one outworking of our reconciliation with God. And this is where I want to go to Galatians 4 that I mentioned a minute ago. Galatians 4. Verses four to six, and it says uh, it says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under. The law. So there's the grace of God in Christ working on behalf of unworthy sinners. This is the gospel. The law looked at us in our sin. It pointed the finger and it said, guilty, guilty, guilty. Deserving of condemnation and knowing this, God sent his son to live under the law Fulfill all its demands perfectly and then suffer as our blameless substitute that the curse of the law that we deserve might be lifted forever and put on him. That's the gospel. That's the good news of this this text. But there's even more that his death secures for you. And I want you to see it in verse 5. What's the point of all that? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And if you're a sister here, princess and daughters. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's prayer. Crying, Abba, Father, as an adopted child of God is a goal of the gospel. And if you want to look at other places where this is true, I'll point them to you. You can look at them when you get home. Romans 8, verses 12 to 15. Ephesians 2, verses 12 to 18. And Hebrews 4. Verses 14 to 16. You you will be able to read those texts and you will be able to see gospel and prayer as a result, as the goal of what God was trying to uh, accomplish. This fellowship, this reconciliation. And from this reconciliation, we, we pray. So not only can we pray because we've been reconciled to God, but also the point becomes we get to pray. We get to pray because we've been reconciled to God. (laughs) The the one who is infinite and wisdom and power and glory. We've been reconciled to him. We pray because God is awesome. Okay? And communicating with him so freely in Christ without fear of condemnation is truly remarkable. The person who asks... Why pray if God is sovereign doesn't get the point of the gospel. The gospel reconciles us to God. We pray because we get God. We have fellowship with God that we once did not have and would not have. And now we have it. He listens to us. Therefore, because of God's sovereignty, because of his ordained means, and especially because of his grace in Christ, we enjoy praying. It's not pointless. It's about a relationship with the sovereign God who reconciled us in Christ and achieves his purposes through our praying and not apart from it. And that includes asking for wisdom, as James tells us to do in James chapter 1, verses 5-8. to 8. So, those are seven reasons why you may struggle to pray and some gospel remedies in each case. I don't pretend that they are exhaustive. Maybe I didn't even cover your particular struggle in prayer uh, this morning. But, perhaps these seven will help fan into flame a passion to persevere in prayer and that it would help you not to grow discouraged in your prayer life, but give you all the more reason to pray, all the more reason to ask God for wisdom. And if I didn't mention your particular struggle today, I hope you see a pattern in this sermon. The main point is that the gospel meets us where we're at in our struggle. It speaks directly to the heart It gives us a right diagnosis of our problem, and then it provides the remedy in Christ. The main point is that we keep the gospel central, even in our praying. It's the gospel that not only gives us life in Christ, it's the gospel that keeps us devoted to prayer and enriches our prayer life. I want to pray now together.